we're in Revelation chapter 6. So, typically, Revelations 1 through 3 are almost no problems. Like, there's usually no controversy. Everyone's like, yeah, we can get through that. Then chapter 4 is when people start to kind of say, like, uh, okay, we may have some differences here. I don't see, I see it this way, I see it that way. And as in, in Doug Wilson's commentary, uh, his, his commentary is called When the Man Comes Around. Um, in the start of chapter 6, he writes, this is the point where people just shake hands and, don't, and agree not to see each other again until the, after the, the resurrection in chapter 20. Uh, just because you get to so many different, what does this mean, and so many different uh, interpretations, speculations, groanings, and just issues. So I think we're going to hopefully going to see some, look at some good things. Um, and if it's somewhere, uh, if in nothing else, at least an introduction to some uh, ideas. And it's something too where, as I mentioned before, we, in the very beginning when we started this revelation journey, uh, I may have a different opinion or different conclusion than what you do. Um, and the same thing is, if if the Lord tarries and we're still here next year or, or five years from now or ten years from now, I may have a different opinion ten years from now of what this means. I know there's things where I thought I had a, a you know I had a certain understanding of it twenty years ago, and there's just time, there's just I think as the Lord shows you things, um, it's always good to be somewhat mold you know flexible, but always be moldable to be molded by the Holy Spirit. If you think about, when you look at Romans chapter 8, yes, we, we know that Romans chapter 8 tells us for whom he did foreknow, he did predestine, but you look and say, what was the purpose of that? And it says it's to be conformed to the image of his Son. The Holy Spirit is conforming us. And that's, a, that's an active, um, I don't know if job is the right word, but it's an active function. The Holy Spirit is doing every single one of us is form, is shaping us to be more like Jesus. And there's a reason for that. The reason for it is because the Father is well pleased with the Son. And because Jesus was perfect and right. And we should be uh, trying to be like Jesus. In fact, that's what the name Christian means, or the title Christian means, is basically you're a Christ imitator. It was actually it was originally designed as a uh, derogatory or as a pejorative term of basically they're making fun of these people who are trying to be like these like Jesus or be like a little Christ. So, all right. Anyways, back here to our text in Revelation chapter six. Here we're in this the pretty famous passage or famous uh, imagery of the four horsemen. Um, one of my one of my favorite movies to watch with Tara, because she hates it, but nonetheless, it's still a great movie. Is is uh, Rudy, and so Rudy, you know, Rudy has a dream to go to Notre Dame, and Notre Dame had these. Uh, they had a t- they had a term of the four horsemen. You know, as part of one of the Notre Dame football teams, was four of their players were. Um, there was just a it was a name that four of their ball players, football players, knew, was knew as the four horsemen. Well, more important, uh, vastly more important than that is actually the four horsemen of the apocalypse, um, and that's we see these here. 
Um, it's interesting is, I think when we read these, it's both the horseman and the horse is also described. So you have he who sits on the horse, and then you have the horse itself. And so one of the things that we've talked about uh, kind of throughout the whole this book of Revelation, we've talked about throughout the study of Revelation, is, is, is a con- is something that we need to be constantly remind, remind ourselves as we're reading it is the symbols, it is a sim- the symbolism. I almost said symbology, but that's not, that's not correct. The symbolism, uh, and remember that a lot of times when John is seeing something, he is trying to put into human words what he is seeing <coughs> happening in heaven and what God is revealing to him. Um, and of course, in over the years, over the centuries, uh, commentators have taken what John is trying to explain and then reinterpret it or and explain it in their own ways. And that's where we have a lot of that's where we have a lot of the problems with. So, anyways, here's what the Bible says in Revelation chapter six. Um, now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, "Come and see." All right, so we have the Lamb. That's what chapter 5 was all about, was the Lamb comes and takes the scroll. The scroll has the seven seals that are, that are keeping, it, keeping it closed. And we talked about basically there, there's one or two ways to understand that. One is um, the scroll, the seals are within the scroll. And so as you unroll the scroll, then you get to another seal and it allows you to unroll even further. The other way to understand it is all seven seals are on the outside of the scroll. So anyways, we have here where now the, he, he who is worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So we have the lamb who is Jesus. He now is going to take and start opening the scrolls. What's interesting is a lot of what we're going to read here in the next several chapters is just the opening of the, of the, of the seals. It doesn't actually get to the opening of the scrolls. It's just going to be, we're going to focus on just the seals first. All right. So the first seal is what we're going to see here at, at first. But um, I do want to make an uh, observation and I make a comment here. Some of, our trans, some of your translations may just say, um, come. Others say, come and see. The King James, New King James, and the older translations have it as come and see. And so it would seem to be that it's speaking directly to John, or it's telling John to come and see. I think that's probably the best way to understand that and interpret what's happening here. Other commentators, they base off as saying that actually that see shouldn't be there. In fact, they look at early, there's early, trans, uh, the early transcripts to say come. And it's actually be a command from the four living creatures or these four beasts that are around the throne. And they're actually speaking to the horsemen and they're telling the horsemen to come. Um, I don't know if it makes that big of a difference, whether if it's a that this is like the green light for the horsemen to go or if it's more of actually directing John's a fo- a focus. I think... And this is just my opinion on it, so I, and I may I may change it, but I think it's consistent with what the rest of the book is. Is John John being told to look, to behold, to see, to hear, listen? 
it makes sense to me that it's it's directed to John to see what's going to happen now that the lamb has taken and broke open one of the seals. Not only that, as, as I mentioned in, in previous weeks, um, this is sensory where all of it, where is he's seeing it, but he's also hearing the voice. And it's interesting that the voice of the angel or I think that's probably the best way to understand that. Remember, we're talking about the four living creatures that are around, or the four beasts that are around the throne. Probably an angel. He, so even though the lamb is there and the lamb is opening it, this angel is still having an interaction and still giving a command or, or instruction. Maybe command might be too strong of a word. Giving instruction to, to John to see it. Now, verse, uh, verse 2. And it says, And I looked, and behold... I think that just backs up why it should be come and see. Why this is directed to John, because John says, okay, yeah, so I was told to see, and so I did, and I looked. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. I'm going to spend a long, a long time on, verse, on this verse 2 tonight, um, but I want, to get, I want to continue reading so we can kind of get the, a feel for what's happening here. Now verse 3 says, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the, th the third living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Before I, get, before I forget or can I keep going, notice where in verse 6, notice where this voice comes from. Okay, He says, I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. All the way back in verse 1, verse 1 he says, I heard one of the four living creatures say it. Now he says, I hear a voice from in the midst of it. We, heard, we knew from what we read in, chap, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, the one who is in the midst is the throne. This is God. So... It very well could be that the voice is, he's actually hearing God's voice. Or it could be one of the other, it could be one of the four creatures and he's not sure. It also could be the voice of the lamb because we hear that the lamb is, we know that the lamb is in the midst of the throne room. So I, as one, I'm not, I'm not going to set, be dogmatic on it. I think it's probably the voice of God, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Anyways, it, here's what, the, here's what the, the voice said about a quart of wheat, um, uh, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now in verse 7, verse 7 is, he opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. 
Okay, again, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna hold off on that. And then the fifth seal, and the fifth seal, verse nine says, verse nine says, uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to each one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, were complete." I looked in what, uh, verse 12 says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth and a fig tree or as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And when the sky recedes as a scroll, when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get through all all the whole chapter tonight. Um, but I do want to draw our attention back here to uh, verse six in particular. Or excuse me, verse two. So chapter six, verse two, and the white horse, and he who sat on the white horse. All right. So straight off the bat, I'm going to tell you that I. The, the, my understanding, my, the interpretation I take of this individual, of this person, is Jesus. This, white, this he, who sits on the he who sits on the white horse is Jesus. Okay? Now, with, when we look at all of this, and we look at the book of Revelation as a whole, the overall theme of the book of Revelation is, is the victory of the Lamb. That he who was slain is now alive, and he is going to reign, and he is going to conquer the enemies, and that he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. And that we know from the other parts of the scripture that there is no end to his kingdom. And this is something that is given to this one who sits on this white horse, is that he is going out conquering and to conquer. Okay? Now... Something that we know with the co the color that is mentioned here, and specifically says that is the he is a white horse. From the book of Revelation so far, the first five chapters, of what we've read, this color white comes up over and over and over again. Even in the very first chapter, when it describes when John sees uh, Jesus, and he had he's wearing a white robe, and he has white hair. Um, and we've talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about that white stone that is given to the people. This is that idea of both of purity, of brilliance, of the, the sense of, and also is usually described as a color of, of victory. So uh, 
we see that they are given white robes. We have a, uh, they're in, they're in dazzling white. So it's this idea of brilliance and being of a purity. What's interesting is this, he who sits on the throne, and the Bible says that he has a bow, okay? The most literal reading of that, most literal, and I'm going to give grant you this, the most literal understanding would be the idea of like archery, of like a bow and arrow, okay? But I want, if you guys would, take your Bibles and turn with me over to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 9. And this is something that we have mentioned before about the bookends, about Genesis and Revelation and the, the connection of, of the Garden of Eden to the paradise that, that awaits those who believe. Okay? We see that the, the beginning, the end, and that the, it's, the end is better than the beginning. So a lot of times, a lot of, a lot of the principles that we see in Genesis... Um, they are paralleled in Revelation, and sometimes we see precursors in, in, Gen- in Genesis or prophecies in Genesis. There's something also in Genesis that we see. All right, in Genesis chapter 9, this is Noah's Ark. This is the flood, um, and that they've already been in the boat for a long time. All right, this is kind of a trick question. Not a trick question, but this is... It's a, it's a question that you might think you had the right answer, but you might be wrong. Um, how long was Noah in the ark for? Or how long, did, how long did it rain for? 40 days and 40 nights. How long was Noah in the ark for? It was almost a year. He was almost a year in the ark. When you look at it, you read, it says, okay, he gets in the ark. The Lord shuts him in. And then it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he's still on the ark. He's still in the ark. And then he lets the, he lets the birds out and he waits for them to come back. When it comes all said and done, it's nearly a full year from the time that he actually um, went into the ark to the time he actually comes back out of the ark. But you could, you could, uh, you could do that as a homework if you want. You could check, you could check that. Um, now... <clears throat> In, so he gets out, he makes his covenant with Noah, all right? Start reading in verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, and of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of my covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my, I'm in verse 13. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall, be, uh, it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. What bow is he talking about? Is he talking about archery right there? Like when you look up in the sky and you see a, you see a crossbow or you see a compound bow. No, what is he talking about? A rainbow. So it is an emblem. It is symbolic. It is a symbol 
of something. It is a symbol of a covenant. That particular covenant is a covenant he makes that he's not going to destroy the, the entire earth again with water. That's what's key. Is that he's not, there's several things there. He is going to destroy the earth, which is not going to be with water. Nor does he say there's never going to be a flood on earth. It's just that there's not going to be a flood over the entire earth that destroys everything else that's still on the earth. We still have floods on the earth. But that, and that does not negate God's promise. But I set my bow in the cloud. In, if we jump all the way back over to Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to suggest I'm going to uh, I'm going to suggest to you brethren that we can understand that this bow can have two different meanings to it. One is the is a symbol of a covenant. You look at who Jesus what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing. Jesus is the lamb for sinners slain. Jesus is that conquering redeemer. He is the victorious savior. He came to save that which was lost. He, he saved those who were looking forward to his coming, right? The old covenant. Now we know that the new covenant has been ratified in his blood, that the, new, that the death of Jesus Christ initiated that new covenant, the acceptance of the blood, the acceptance of the propitiation that the Father says, it, it, is, it is paid, Jesus paid it all, and he ransomed, he paid the ransom for all who will repent and believe upon him. All those who repent and believe in Jesus are now in a covenant relationship with him. He is the testator of the new covenant. We are the beneficiaries of that new covenant. We are the participants of that new covenant. Not only do we have the new covenant, but we also have the covenant of redemption. This eternal covenant of redemption of which the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost had planned, had decreed, has executed that which was from the, before the foundation of the world that God said, I'm going to save a people unto myself. And that what is still going on even now in our day and age, every time that somebody comes and confesses their sin and confesses faith in Jesus Christ, and they profess that Jesus is Lord. This is the covenant of redemption being worked out in real time. This bow that this one who has, who's on the white horse is symbolic of being brought into this covenant of salvation, this covenant of redemption. The other side of that, I saw that is that we do know that, we do know there's Bible, the Bible does speak of the bow of the Lord as a weapon that they, he will bend his bow and that he shoots these fiery, he shoots these pricks that pricks our very conscience. And also the Bible does talk about that those who are the enemies of God, those who are the enemies of God, the weapons of God will prevail against. Now, that doesn't have to just be in judgment though. All of us, all of us, at one point in time, were enemies of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that the carnal mind is at enmity with God. The carnal mind is hostile to God. Who has a carnal mind? You guys tell me, who has a carnal mind? 
Everybody does until the Holy Spirit births. We have a new birth. We're born again. And we have the transforming of our mind, that transformation. This is why we read in Romans chapter 12, be ye transformed in renewing of your mind. We have to have our, change, our thinking change, our thoughts change, our priorities change, our worldview change, our perceptions must be changed by the grace of God and through that new birth that comes only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and is wrought by the Holy Spirit or worked by the Holy Spirit within us. We who once were far off, we who once were estranged, we who once were, were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel have been brought nigh. We are no longer the enemies of God, but now we are reconciled and we have fellowship with Him. We have fellowship with Him. You know, there's a very, and admittedly so, a very spiritual way to read 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about that Jesus shall reign till all his enemies are put under his feet. You and I, you and I as followers of Christ, we come to him and we sit at his feet as his disciples. This is a very common thing that you would, you would be at the feet one, it says indication of that rabbi, of that, that teacher-student relationship, of the, of the rabbi-disciple um, uh, dynamic there. It also has that dynamic of him being on the throne and us bowing down before him and bowing at his feet. Where no longer are we fighting against him, but now he is fighting for us. This is a picture. I think the way to understand understand the rest of the book of Revelation and really kind of the whole of the book of Revelation is this isn't talking about just one little seven-year window in the future sometime. Because the way a lot of people understand and try to interpret the book of Revelation is you got chapter four that start that's the rapture. Right? When, 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 the, when John hears, come up hither, and John is taken up into heaven, a lot of people understand that to be the rapture of the church. And now you have the seven-year window of the seven-year tribulation. Okay? And they try to force everything that we read from chapters 4 all the way to chapter 19 in that seven-year tribulation period. I think a better way to understand this is is speaking of what has happened, what is happening, and what is going to happen. You guys have heard me say this over and over and over again. Past, present, future. Even in John's age, even when John wrote this book some 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago now, there was already the past, present, future in his time. Write down the things that you have seen. Write down the things that are and write down the things that will be. Let me ask you guys this question. When did, when did this gospel message of salvation start? Has, has, it, has it already started? Yes. 
When? When did it start? Genesis. I would say, yeah, Genesis, God promised that he's going to send a redeemer. And all who believe that are going to be saved. And throughout the Old Testament, we have these reminders that it is by faith, it's by believing in God, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And so then, if we want to put a more of a more of a pinpoint, concrete date on the calendar, we can say, okay, Jesus dies on the cross and he, he's resurrected in AD 33. Alright? So we can say that the Christian church has been preaching this gospel of faith in a resurrected Christ. Since AD 33, because resurrected Christ hasn't been resurrected until AD 33. So we can say that I think what John is seeing, John is seeing this one who is victorious, this one who is brilliant and beyond comparison to any other person, any other being, there is none like him. He goes forth. And notice that the 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 verb that the verbs that are used there um, at the end of verse two is that he went out conquering and to conquer. Do you? We I know we read through the, a lot of that in the passage, but what's interesting to note is, and this is kind of hard to do sometimes, and you want to be careful taking this approach. It's something we don't see when he comes back. It says that he, he went out and he's conquering and he went out to conquer. Let me have you turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. So Revelation 19 says, verse 1, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Uh, for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Okay, now I'm going to drop down to uh, verse 11. So verse 11 says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on him that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen and white and clean followed him on white horses. Now the mouth out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, uh, and with that he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepresses of fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All right. Is there any question or any any if i say in revelation 19 this one that we see in revelation 19 this is the lord jesus christ 
any question, any dispute, any other person that this could possibly be. No, it has to be Jesus. It's the only person that this is, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so you have in Revelation 19, Jesus sits on the white throne. He has crowns on his heads. He has, uh, he has a sword, and he goes out to take care of business. All right? In Revelation 6 is a very similar very similar description that he has he sits on a white horse he has a bow so the difference is he doesn't have the sword but he does have a bow which i would suggest to you is can be symbolic of that offering of the covenant that offering of salvation and then if that doesn't then he also has that right then to also have the bow which can be a weapon um and then, well, I think the way to look at this, as I mentioned, we can see this as instead of trying to force it all into a seven-year period, if we stretch that out and to say that now we're 2,000 years into this, that this seal was probably already opened back, if we had, you know, human timeline-wise, Back in the first century A.D., okay? Then the second seals, or is it the second seal, third seal, fourth seal, we're not necessarily given a timeline on those things. It would seem, the reading of it, it would seem that it would happen, obviously it happens afterwards, but we're not told how much long afterwards. But I think what this is showing us is actually a picture of the early church especially around A.D. 70. A.D. 70 is, is a destruction of Jerusalem. We've mentioned, we've talked about this before with the Roman, the Roman Judea War, the Roman Jewish War. Um, and then finally, they're fighting for about three years, starting in about uh, A.D. 67. And then by the time they get to A.D. 70, they've had enough, and they come in, and it is literally a bloodbath. They literally, there's historical accounts of the blood rising up to the to the to the bridle to the reins of the horses because they're just killing so many people and they do tear down the temple in jerusalem in AD 70. we also know that during this time that what was going on what was going on you guys described to me the new testament church and what was happening to the new testament church during the time of the apostles. They're being thrown to lions, burnt to death, thrown yeah. in the Colosseum, mm -hmm. all kinds of death and torture. Mm -hmm. The church had persecution. We know that already in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, James and John were brothers. John's brother, his James, he's killed. He's killed by Herod. He's going to kill Peter, because, and that's why Peter is taken prisoner. Peter's locked up because uh, he saw, they saw how much it, it pleased the Sanhedrin, how much it pleased the Pharisees, how much it pleased the Jewish establishment that they killed members of the church. What was, what was the Apostle Paul doing before Jesus saved him? He 
He was tracking people down. He was stoned. He, he, watches, he watched Stephen be stoned to death as a martyr. He's like an active participant in it. And then he's, he's going around Jerusalem, evidently, getting Jews. And then he's like so eager, he wants to go outside of Jerusalem, cross actually even an international border, and go up into Damascus. Which is which is in a different country. That's how zealous he was. Is he's going? To, I'm going to get out of. I'm going to leave Judea and I'm going to go up to Damascus and get get Christians up there. The church was persecuted, but what was happening to the population of the church, or what was happening to the numbers of the church? It's going on crazy, exploding. exploding, hundreds and hundreds. In fact, the New Testament tells us about. In Acts chapter 2, about 3,000 were added to the church that day on the day of Pentecost. And then you go in another couple chapters, and we see that they get another 2,000 added to the church. And it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. That they estimate that Jerusalem church alone had at least 10,000 people in Jerusalem that were Christians. Even though they're literally stabbing them and stoning them, driving them out of synagogues taking their money away from them, that they couldn't work anymore because they've been abandoned or they have left the faith, and so now they're dead to them, and dead people can't work. When we read of these, when we read of these, these other seals right here, of conflict on earth, of the scarcity, of the food problems, um, and the widespread death on earth, what this is a picture, and what these are describing is persecution of the church. Also, it's going to talk about that there is going to be, at some point, there is going to be general warfare and, and a universal not pleasant things are going to happen. I think, and this is one of the things we've talked about before, is that near far, the near far fulfillments, so in that first generation, we see what Jesus, what Jesus told them was going to happen. Back in Matthew, we read in Matthew chapter 24, what Jesus told was going to happen to that generation is fulfilled in A.D. 70. But it doesn't have to be, that's the end-all, be-all, the only time that's ever going to, to be fulfilled. I believe the initial ful- fulfilling was then, through that, through that first generation, those first 40 years of the church. And now we're seeing this as a, continue, as a continuum or as a continual process in the church age. However, he who sits on the white, white horse is still conquering. There are some who take this as not Jesus himself. They're rather, they take this as symbolic of the message of the gospel and the gospel is going out and the gospel is victorious and the gospel is triumphant and the gospel is what is um, continuing to go and tear down those strongholds and tear down the dominions and to make the make the gospel of christ known and is going to continue to be known um and I'm, i'm okay with that and there's other people who don't they don't see this as christ at all they think that this is some kind of another 
creature. This is some kind of other being. Um, we already talked about the four beasts around the, around the throne, and we talked the four and twenty the four and twenty elders. This can be another person or another entity, another angel, perhaps maybe even a demon that is used to go and do these things. Some people believe that this is Antichrist. That is Antichrist. I said, I fall, I believe that this is a, this is a representation of, of Christ himself um, and probably is Christ himself going and doing this and he's proceeding. Um, one of the things that the, uh, one of the things that we can read and we look through this is throughout the, throughout the Bible, the Lord is referenced that he is the conqueror. He is the conqueror. And in fact, we, we've already read that. We saw that in chapters 4 and 5 that um, he was victorious. He has overcome um, throughout the, when we looked at the, the epistles to the seven letters, uh, in chapters 2 and chapters 3, is those who overcome or those who are victorious or those who are the conquerors. It's the same Greek word that is used, that is used there. If you want to take your Bible and turn over to the Gospel of John and John chapter 16. In the Gospel of John chapter 16. In John 16 um, and verse 25. John 16, 25 says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. All right, who has some, is, does someone have it worded differently in verse 25? Figures of speech. Figurative speech? Figures okay. Of speech. Oh, figures of speech. All right. I, I've spoken unto you in Proverbs. In Proverbs. Okay. So in Proverbs, figures of speech, figurative language. Also another way to say symbolic type of, Okay. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. Uh, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. And again, I leave the world to go to the Father. All right. Um, that's on. Verse 29 says, uh, His disciples said to him, uh, See now you are speaking plainly and using no figures of speech. Um, now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Verse 31 says, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, and has now come, that you will be scattered each one to his own, and I will leave, and I will leave, and leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What in verse 33, do you guys have something, a different word than I have overcome? All right. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Okay. All right. I was going to share with you some of the thoughts and what this man has said is that uh, this is I've, I've I've quoted from him before. This is a Hendrickson. Um, it says in Revelation five five. We read that Christ has conquered, 
Uh, this reference, this refers to the accomplished, the accomplished redemption on the cross of Golgotha. In 6.2, the rider on the white horse is introduced as conquering and to conquer. That conquest is being carried on at the present. And he goes on to say, he goes on to read this, is that, uh, fourthly, the idea that the conqueror upon the white horse is Christ is in harmony with the very genius and purpose of the book of Revelation. We have indicated that the very theme of this book is the victory of Christ and of his church. I said the, the very, I, okay, the, again and again, our Lord Jesus Christ is represented as the one who has conquered and is conquering and shall conquer. Uh, the idea of the conquering Christ is a thread running throughout this book from beginning to end. And then I was going to flip over. Let's give you, he, he goes through and he, break, he breaks down each one of these writers and he breaks down the, the seals of, in, the, in Revelation 6. Um, here's, a quick, here's a quick rundown of how, how he reads and understands each rider of this. He says, the rider on the white horse is our Lord Jesus Christ. The rider on the red horse represents slaughter. When he says slaughter, and he talks about that, they use a very specific Greek word that talks about a short sword or a long knife. And there's two different Greek words. One is that battle sword or a long sword, where you would use as more like in war, versus there's a shorter sword or a long knife that they would use in either um, like face-to-face, like you're going to murder somebody, or what like the priest would use when they would do a sacrifice and it would be almost like this ritual killing and the idea that they tried to bring out with a different using the use of the different greek words there is that these people are are believing that they are doing a a good thing by slaughtering christians I'm not expert enough in the Greek to know if that's right or wrong. I can't see the difference in the Greek words, um, but I'm, I'm not sure if that's the best way to understand that. But anyway, it says, The rider on the red horse represents slaughter. The rider on the black horse represents economic hardship and poverty due to injustice. The second and third seals symbolize the direct persecution of the church by the world. I'm going to read that part again. The second and third seals symbolize the direct persecution of the church by the world. And then the rider on the pale horse um, represents death. The sword is warfare, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. These are the common woes of humanity described here from the aspects of their effect on the kingdom of God. And he, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna read it to you, but he does have some excellent about, about three pages. That he talks about those four particular things uh, that the, the pale horse brings um, when talking about de- about death. All right, so these four horsemen. There's a couple other places in this in the Bible where it talks about specifically about four horses and about the color of horses. Okay. Uh, most notably is in Zechariah. Zechariah has his night visions, um, and he sees four horses. And we've seen that, that John 
has done this before in Revelation, and he's going to do this again. He takes a concept, or he takes a prophecy, or he takes a statement from the Old Testament, and we see the kind of the, I don't know if foundation is the right word for that, but he takes that he takes that introduced idea or like I said, that prophecy or statement that one of the prophets or one of the patriarchs has said, and it's either expounded upon or it's maybe given uh, maybe a slightly different meaning or understanding. We saw this a little bit with David or uh, yeah, a little bit David, but also with Daniel's what I was looking for. Um, Daniel, we've looked at that. And now with Ezekiel or Zechariah does it, and also there's another reference in in Ezekiel where it seemed that this is, he's pulling from as well. All right, so back in Revelation six, and I'll start to I'll start to wrap it up here, or at least I'll I'll, I'll stop talking and give it a chance for, for other people. All right, so I left off at verse two, that he who sits on the white horse goes out. He has a bow and a crown. The crown representing kingship, also representing authority. Uh, he is, he is, uh, I think this would represent, you know, we know that Jesus is crowned, but that could also, there's other, there's other persons who have crowns. But now the second seal. So the second seal, um, verse 3, And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and it was given to him a great sword. Um, so we know that there were persecutions. The church has been persecuted. We also know that if, if this is speaking specifically of a time in the future in the tribulation, what's interesting is that if this is a future from now? So let's say I'm, just, I'm not setting a date. I'm just throwing a I'm just throwing a number out there. Ten years from now. Give us a yeah, exactly. Right, day and month. I'll give you a location where you need to wait for the rapture to happen. Be at this time and place. Yeah. All right. So the uh, but what's interesting is that if this is in the future, and if this is taking literal. What does that mean that the, the, fu- the weapons of the future will be? Uh, what you're getting at is that we will get so bad that we're all the way back to early weapons. Yeah, I mean, we have, yeah. we have so many guns, firepower, nukes. We have ICBMs, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles. We have yeah, drone strikes. You have direct energy weapons. We have lasers. We have so many inventive ways that we have decided we, you could use to destroy ourselves and the planet. But we go back to killing with swords. So if this is future tense, it seems that there's going to be some kind of utter collapse of society that every guns and bombs and bullets don't even matter anymore. Or this is talking specifically stuff that happened in the first century. When the Romans did attack and the Romans did use, that was their, they had the Roman gladius. They had, that was their weapons were literally swords and spears. That's again why I would think that we need to have an understanding of a near far, or if this is a literal understanding of it, where, yeah, people literally did stab each other with swords all the time. Today, not so much. 
but there's still stab you know stab stuff happens a lot yeah yeah verse five says uh when he opened the when he opened the third seal i heard the third living creature say come come and see what's interesting is that each one of the living creatures speaks on these on these seals being opened up i'm not sure why or what the significance of that is um also, I don't know if you can necessarily equate that to, so we talked about the, you know, one of the creatures, we talked about like the idea of like the ox and the eagle and the face of a man, and if it has some kind of connection to, I'm sure someone a lot smarter and or imaginative than I have is like made those, they've connected those dots. Um, I'm not sure if that is, if that's, we need to, if that's the focus of that though. It could have some bearing on it, but I'm, I, I don't know. Um, so then he sees this, and this is speaking of this black horse, which black is usually the color of what? Oh, good. Sin, that's good. Sin, yeah. death, darkness. Of uh, Something of, and I think that kind of, t- that kind of keeps this in mind, says, um, uh, oh, I saw that with talking about it. Yeah. So he has a black horse and he was set on a pair of scales in his hands. This is interesting is that each each of these they have something in their hand or they have something that they could possibly use or that is some kind of um, implement or piece of equipment. So whether it be from the, the, the first one that has a bow and a crown, and now this third one, he literally has scales in his hand. And it would seem that this is the idea of a scale is, scales always represents justice, okay? We see that in our own, you know, you've watched Judge Judy and she has, you know, she has Lady Justice and is holding the blindfold and has got the scales up there. And the scales of justice are supposed to be balanced. And that's one of the reasons why the Lady, you know, Lady Justice is a blindfolded is because she's looking at it as it doesn't matter who is, who is, who's standing in front of you. They should have a just weight. It should be fair. It should be right. One of the things that is may indicate is that with it being black, a black horse is sometimes also black represents the idea of the blinding or it's being veiled or it's being hidden and you can't see. And so it's not necessarily in a sense of fairness, but it's actually the opposite. You can't see what the scales are. It's actually talking about injustice, that you don't know if if this is fair or not. You don't know if it's supposed to be whatever the transaction is or whatever the punishment is or whatever is happening, if this is, if this is right. And then this is what's interesting is that verse 6 is that's when he hears the other voice. It could be from God or it could be from one of the other living creatures. Um, and he says, a quart of wheat for a denarius. Um, do you guys have something other than denarius? Penny. A penny? Yeah. <laughs> King James has penny. Um, a denarius is probably what they consider to be a day's wage. And so this is what you would work for. So the idea is that, one, if you're getting paid by the day, it very well could be they, they weren't expecting you to, make, you might not even live to get to spend it. Um, the other idea is that if all you're able to do is whatever you worked, you made enough money for that day, 
was to be able to buy food for you for that day. And you didn't have any other money. So we're talking about poverty. And you're also talking about there's a lack of food for your laborers. The people who are working on the earth are going to have basically enough for wheat and barley, which is enough basically just to make bread. But it's interesting, it says here, the voice tells him, do not harm the oil and the wine. Um, the oil and the wine, some commentators have thought that this is talking about the difference between the rich and the poor. That the wealthy people are going to be able to have their luxuries of life. They're going to be able to have their fine wines. They're going to be their oils. They can put oils on their food to make it taste good, to be able to cook, cook with their oil. They also could use the oils for a lot of times. They did, they, that's how they did their skin care and other types of um, medicinal purposes the oils were used for. So it could be that there were certain things that, that were going to be available, and there's other stuff that wasn't. I, I don't know if this is something that is supposed to be taken symbolically or if this is something that is, that is literal. If it's literally like we're all, it's just going to be bread to eat, and whatever you worked that day, all you, could, all you could afford is bread, or if this has some kind of more of a f- spiritual symbolic meaning or not. I'm not sure. You guys have any thoughts or any note? You guys have any notes on perhaps what verse six is talking about? All right. So then the fourth seal, and we'll, I'll I'll finish with the fourth seal because this is the the, um, the fourth seal. He says, "When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see.' So I looked, and behold, a pale horse." Um, some people have really tried to figure out exactly what color this is. And, you know, if, you, if you've been around horses, you know you could, have, you could have different colors. You could have dapple gray, you could have strawberry roans. You could have just different colors. Of, horses are all kinds of colors. Like dogs are all different kinds of colors. I think it's more the idea of the, uh, the wellness of this horse. It looks sickly. It's a sickly-looking horse. Some actually describe it as this greenish, like the idea of when you're green around the gills, that's the old phrase of um, you just don't look good. You can just see the color. And people talk about like you're, I've had it happen a couple times. I've seen it with Logan. I've seen it happen to Logan a couple times. Is you see that it's weird when you see a white person turn even whiter, right? (laughs) And like literally all that color drains from their face. And it goes pale, and you know that they are not in a good condition. Uh, one of the things this makes me think of, um, I'm, not saying this is the, I'm not saying this is an interpretation of it, I'm saying it makes me think of, going again, going back to, to the book of Genesis, and with Joseph in a dream of the pharaohs. Or what, dream of Pharaoh. What, did Pharaoh, what animals did Pharaoh dream of? The cows. And what, how is it described that the cows looked? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fat cows, or I think it's Bible, I think the King James talked about sleek cows. The idea that they're sleek is because they're so fat that it's just, they're filled out and, and it's just, they're, they're rounded. Versus the idea of the sick cows 
where they are sickly. They look, you see the ribs on them. That they just look, you could look at them and say, man, that's, I don't think he's going to make it. <laughs> and they're sickly looking. I think this is kind of the idea what Paul, or excuse me, when John is having this vision here in Revelation, John is having this vision of even, even the horse that death rides is sickly looking. I think this is what speaks of that what is coming to the earth is going to be pestilence. And, but he's not, he's, he kills in a, in a variety of different ways. Um, and he kills with, uh, he says, a fourth of them. So 25%, 25% of the earth's population is to kill with a sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the field or beasts of the earth. Some people try to make, like, this is 25, 25, 25, and 25. Because it talks about there's four different ways that they die. And so 25, 25, 25 would be 100%. Or it could just be these 25% or the fourth of the earth. He uses these four different ways to kill uh, these people. Um, Hendricks talks about that he actually has this indication of that this is actually a fulfillment of a of a of an Old Testament prophecy, or is connect is connected with a passage from. Uh, he says, "Careful study reveals, however, that these four seals indicate types of woes that are easily distinguishable. The fourth seal, moreover, describes four universal woes." Uh, they are viewed here from the aspect of their significance for the church. War, not just one particular war, but war between nations, war, wherever and whenever it occurs throughout the entire dispensation, is mentioned first. The sword refers to warfare is clear on the basis of Revelation chapter 2, verse 16, and Revelation 19, verse 21. Next, hunger or famine is mentioned. This, too, is a very great general woe, often mentioned in the Bible. And when a city is besieged in time of war, famine often follows. Famine, in turn, is often followed by or associated with pestilence. Pestilence, both here and in the Septuagint translation of Ezekiel 14.21, is called death. Just as even today we call it the Black Death, as it is here mentioned in connection with famine, it is probable that pestilence proper, the bubonic plague, is meant. Anyone who is interested in a fascinating description <laughs> in a fascinating description of what we consider to be the bubonic plague should read 1 Samuel 5 through 7 for the very close co connection between famine and pestilence see Jeremiah 21 Luke 21 and Ezekiel it says finally just as Ezekiel here so just as in Ezekiel so here the wild beasts are mentioned these wild beasts also do not distinguish between believers and unbelievers uh, so then he goes on for more Something also is one thing, too, is that to consider this, I think the idea of this being kind of fulfilled throughout the church's history, and if it's going to be especially so towards the end, any, any Christian reading this in the past 2,000 years, any Christian reading this, they could pick up and they could read and they know what a sword is. They know what getting bit by a wild animal means and getting actually eaten by a wild animal. We are very, we, as Americans, 
man, we have a great country. We have a very civilized country. Or if somebody actually gets attacked by an animal, it's kind of a, it's kind of weird, right? It kind of like, man, how, how, where were you? Like, why did that happen? It's not, it's not uncommon, but it happens. Growing up in California, we'd hear about and we hear about mountain lions. Mountain lions would always jump on the head, like joggers and little kids. They would jump on the head and they would literally like bite their heads because they these like would like they pounce and fall and they put their they put their whole head or put their mouth in their in their head or their head in their mouth. Um, but it made the news. Usually, if it's a common everyday occurrence, it doesn't make the news because it's not newsworthy. But nonetheless. It's something that we can understand and the church can understand regardless of the age that you're in. You can understand being hungry. You understand that every generation has death and faces death. You also understand that now you're going to go back to this idea of being the beasts of the earth are even turned against you. So, all right. And then, like I said, I'll stop because the fifth seal of verse 9. Verse 9 starts a whole new thing. All right. Was that new to anybody hearing that Jesus is he who sits on Jesus is the first horseman or has, has people have people heard that before I'll be honest it's kind of a newer I heard it I heard it a few years ago and I started thinking about it thinking about it and it's really been in the past couple of years I've kind of come to that point of thinking I think that's right I think that's right that makes it makes sense that you could have Jesus go first and then these other things follow after. You think about when Jesus is born. Okay, so all the way back in Bethlehem. Jesus is born, and then Herod finds out about it, and then Herod sends out to have all the babies killed. Jesus is doing miracles. Or Jesus gets baptized. Then he's tempted by Satan. You have when the, when, the acti- when, the, when the ministry of Jesus is going, you have a lot of demonic activity going. But you look at, even if we go all the way back to Genesis, we look at the God as the initiator, and then Satan as a follow-on. But then God triumphs in the end. This is something where you can see that same type of parallel. We see that same type of that motif repeating itself where the Lord proceeds because he is first. And then these bad things follow after that. But then Jesus is a final say-so. All right. Anything before we close? Mm Hmm. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. They're they're waiting, but Jesus is doing his thing first. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's a great observation there. Yeah, Tim. Yes, um. Well, two things. The bow, two, two, two chapters mm-hmm. before, to Judah and and Israel with 
the Babylon, well, Syrians and the Babylonians and then Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And what happened with Jerusalem specifically with Babylon and how it was, how it was sieged and uh, you know, it had famine, had, uh, they, were, they, were, they would kill each other by the sword. Mm-hmm. There was another famine. There was, there was disease. There was beasts. There was all of that. Mm-hmm. We, I think we're given a paint. We're painted a picture of what that would be like, or what that will be like, but then what happened in Jerusalem. Yeah. But then there's also that promise that was given to them that they would have their land again, and, you know, at, some, at some point they would be able to build the temple and, and all that. But after seven years, they would be out of exile, or the, be able to go back to their land. Yeah. And it goes back where he, where he, one of the things he promised to one of the seven churches is that they don't have to fear the second death. The first death, yeah, they may, they might be killed, they might be, they might be persecuted and martyred. They may become martyrs for the faith. And in fact, when we read, you know, next week, Lord willing, that's the fifth seal: is the martyrs under the altar. They're killed. They're killed during this time. But the judgments of God. They will refine his church, and or they also will punish the unbelievers. And God can use the same thing, the same event, and have a different, totally different reaction out of, out of somebody. Um, I, we're we're talking about you know the. I usually try not. Well, no, that's not true. Okay. <laughs> um, anyways, Toby Keith died this week. And he was 62, you know, had cancer. And but I saw, I saw, um, a, I saw an interview they had with him. A couple, you know, I don't know when he had the interview, but it was obviously after his diagnosis, and he was just, he was not looking good. He, he was like this pale, you know, he's like this pale horse. He's just, yeah, you know, he's just not looking good. But he already said he he told the interviewer he said, I already got it straight in my head. He said I got my I got my head wrapped around it that when I die. It's going to be a release, and I'm going to go be with the Lord. Now, I, I don't know what Jacoby keeps. I don't know his salvation, but he's, he, had his, he had his understanding that he was good to die. He was okay with dying because he knew that the suffering would be over, and he knew that when he was released from this body, he was going to stand before the Lord. Now, that part's true. That's, part, that's true for anybody. <laughs> You're going to stand before the Lord. But he was at he was at peace with it, and there's some people who they don't. You could have that same event happen, and there's those who are going to be at peace, and those who are going to be even 
more miserable because the judgment of God is upon them. Yeah, they're begging the mountains and following them. We're going we're gonna to get on into the right later on in the book. They're, these people are going to be looking for ways to commit suicide. They're going to be hoping, for, they're going to be trying to find ways to die. And it's not, it's not available to them. All right. So, okay, well, let's go ahead. We'll go ahead and close. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for Jesus. And we do thank you also for the, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or we do believe that the, these words were inspired. The Holy Spirit wrote, had, had these words written and preserved. And Lord, I pray as we read through these and we study on them, um, you, you would help us to understand and better our understanding. And, and Lord, I pray that you would, you would change me where I need to be changed and correct me where I need to be corrected. And Lord, I do pray that we could ever look unto Jesus and understand that he is winning and that he will win. And even though we may seem to, it may seem to not be going great at times, we know that ultimately Jesus wins. I pray that you would ever remind us of that, that you are the king, you are God, you are sovereign, you are on the throne, and we are here to live for your glory. And whenever, however and whenever that looks like, I pray that we do pray for Christ, for Christ to win and for, for us to have a good testimony of him. Lord, ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Too soon? Mm-hmm. Too soon? 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 Too soon